On the 8th of July, 1745, in Enfield, Connecticut, there was a sermon preached that has been reported as the most powerful, the most influential sermon ever preached on North American soil. You'll find that I beg to disagree, but nevertheless, that's what's been stated. Many books uh, are available. If you were to look at Amazon, many books are available about this sermon. It is entitled Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Now, the influence of this particular sermon is not just the words, because in fact, the circuit preacher who preached that sermon had just preached the exact same sermon word for word a few days earlier in another town called Northampton. And there the result was almost nothing. However, when he preached this sermon and finished it, People were shrieking, people were wallowing on the floor, people were crying, uh, people were, there were piercing cries. It was like a madhouse as people were in torment over their sin. And to many people, that has since become the top standard of a spiritual revival. Others might say it was more like a post-traumatic sermon, uh, you know, uh, damage. But uh, these people were, uh, would have been looked upon as being mentally ill or they were deeply moved by the Spirit. I'll leave that to you. But I will quote a little bit from this sermon right now and why I say it's so influential because of course anybody who wants to have a revival have studied this sermon and ought to copy that and who would want to be critical of it. Uh, and, and, and so uh, uh, sinners in the hands of an angry God. Now I'm more talking about sinners and saints in the hands of a loving God. So let me quote from this sermon. Just a couple of quotes. The bow of God's wrath is bent and the arrow made ready on the string, and justice aims the arrow at your heart, and strains the bow, and it is nothing but the mere pleasure of God, and that of an angry God, without any promise or obligation at all, that keeps the arrow one moment, from being made drunk with your blood. Quite a sermon. Here's another quote. Don't leave. I'm not preaching this. I'm going somewhere with this. Here he said, the God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect. So that's what you would be compared to. Over the fire, he abhors you. That means he hates you. And is dreadfully provoked. Remember, this was a Sunday morning crowd he was preaching to. And is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. You are 10,000 times so abominable in his eyes as the most hateful and venomous serpent is in your eyes. And the people were shrieking in terror. I notice you're not shrieking, you're merely very quiet. 
uh, which I interpret in a good way because I would have hated for any of you to say hallelujah at this point. Uh, but, but anyhow, you seem rather solemn. But this sermon then is considered, this is just some quotes, it's not the totality of this man's sermons. This is called uh, the greatest sermon of the great awakening. And people say, we need another awakening. We need another awakening. And so how did the first one come about? And so they go back to this. And then this has been retaught. You can go on any bookstore and you can find, even today, 200 years later, after, after, you can find so many books written about this sermon. And people say, that's really preaching it. But I submit to you that we don't go back to any great awakening in the United States. We go back to the book of Acts. When we say we want things to happen, we are not talking about something that, in my opinion, induced mental illness on people who agonized and did not see the joy of salvation. The biblical record is that they received the word with gladness in their heart, not with shrieks and vomiting and wallowing and begging and agonizing. But nevertheless, this has affected us. It's almost given us an idea of a schizophrenic God who loves us, but watch out. He's going to get you. Watch. I hope I'm on God's good side. It's brought about insecurity in people. And I think if we really want to be a force for good in our city, in our country, in our family, we need to discover who God really is. And so I'm here to tell you, sinners and saints, in the hands of a loving God. Now, that's a good time to give a clap if you want to clap, but feel free. And so I'm talking about in the hands of your loving God. First of all, a word for the world at large. I'm talking to believers today, but for the world. You know, Jesus said in John 12, 47, if anyone hears my words and does not believe, I do not judge him. I encourage you to follow Jesus. If anyone hear you witnessing about Christ and don't believe, don't judge them. Jesus says, I don't judge them. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Another encouraging verse for the entire world is the story from Luke 15, where this is repeated several times. It talks here about the shepherd when the sheep was lost. And we may consider that our country or the world is lost. It says about the shepherd, he goes after the one which is lost until he finds it. It doesn't say he goes after the lost until he's fed up. And he said, until he says, I've had enough. He goes until he finds it. There is hope for every family and for every person. Now I'm talking to believers. You are in the hands of a loving father. And uh, uh, let me read this, John 10. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. Why is that? It's because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. It says in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Because of what Jesus did, 
you have become the righteousness of God. That's beautiful. So I ask you, do you think God is angry with his own righteousness? So certainly you are not a sinner or a saint in the hands of an angry God because you are made his righteousness and no way will he be angry with his own righteousness. And so the gospel is so beautiful. In this series, I've been comparing it with a tasty apple. Show that picture of the, all the beautiful, look at those apples. That's how the gospel is, just so salivating. You bite into that apple and the flavor bursts in your mouth and you say, I want one more bite. But then put up the second picture for just a moment. This is the effect of religion. I know this picture could give you nightmares, so look now, one, two, three, take it down. Uh, religion puts worms into the little, in, into the beautiful apple of God's grace. So I will deworm again today. Here's the first little worm I would like to point out. I call it in and out theology. Not in and out burger, that's a different thing. In and out theology. It means like this, I lose fellowship. You know, yes, if I do something wrong, if I sin, well, you know, God still knows I'm his child, but I lose fellowship. The idea is if I'm doing good, I'm in fellowship with God. And if I'm doing bad, I'm not in fellowship with God. It's like God is in a swivel chair and he's looking at me and he just swivels back. He says, no, no, I don't, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not hanging out with you right now. And so, you know, the word fellowship is found 12 times in the Bible, and the Bible never talks about us being in fellowship or out of fellowship with God. That expression doesn't exist. It only talks about that believers are always in fellowship with our Heavenly Father. 1 Corinthians 1, 9, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. 2 Corinthians 13, 14, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. The fellowship of the Holy Spirit is with you. So wherever state you find yourself in right now, you've trusted Jesus Christ, you are in fellowship. Maybe you had an anger outburst 45 minutes ago, maybe you had something else stupid happen. God doesn't turn his back on you. And here is the verse. We have quoted it a few times lately because it's so astounding. It needs to be pondered. I think even Pastor Nathan referred to it today. Second Timothy 2.13. I mean, this is shocking. This goes against all religion. It says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. It doesn't say, if we are faithless, well, he'll get even. He'll show you where to get off. Well, you know, you thought you saw his loving side, but if, 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 if we are faithless, I'll tell you, you'll taste that other schizo side of God's anger. That's what people, that's what religion says. But it says, if we are faithless, and we don't want to be faithful, but if we are, he remains faithful. I always feel like saying, salute Jesus. You are awesome. You are faithful. We could fail, but you will never fail. That's why I get a little bit nervous when I hear worship songs saying, oh Lord, I'll always love you. I said, don't make too many promises. Because it could happen that 2 Timothy kicks in for you here. 
But if you sing that he is faithful, great is thy faithfulness. Oh, I said, I can, I can feel that. And, and you say, but how, how, does this, how does this incentivize us to live holy? Let me give you the most drastic example. Again, this is a shocker. In the city of Corinth, Corinth was Las Vegas multiplied a thousand times. You know, Corinth was sin city. Are you with me? They had temples of prostitution. So that prostitution was an act of worship in their thinking. So, you know, at least people all got saved. They received Jesus, but they're still living in this society. And naturally they were tempted. Because, you know, whatever society we live in, we are tempted with whatever is going on in that society. Is that right? So they've been thinking one way. Now they've come to Christ. So Paul is addressing this issue that it seems like some people had come to faith in Christ. They were still uh, drawn to the prostitution temple. So how would you counsel such a Christian? Would you say, well, brother, you're giving the whole church a bad name. How would you counsel? Let's see how Paul counseled. And I'm quoting from the context there. He says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? He doesn't just say, don't you know that your spirit has been born again? Don't you know that your soul belongs to the Lord? That could have been said. But he says, your bodies are members of Christ. And then he says, if, as if that wasn't clear enough, should I then take the members of Christ, namely your body, and make it members of a harlot? Certainly not. I can see those Corinthians, they were freaking out. They were probably thinking like many Christians today, well, you know, I'm gonna go to church on Sunday and have a good cleanup. I've been doing some sinning in the week, but I'm going to go to the church and have a little cleanup Sunday morning. And they're taking the communion every week. So that's just the perfect church to go to for a little, little cleanup session. And so people have this idea that, you know, you know I, Jesus, Jesus and I, we are in church. But Friday, you know, Jesus, you don't have to come with me Friday night. You can stay home, Jesus. Like, you, you can just stay. In fact, you go over there to the church building and you can hang around there, Jesus, because I have some other action going on here that you might not approve of. Could that happen? Like, I'm, I'm going to do this now. I don't care. I don't care. I'm going to do this now. And I'm just going to say, you know, Jesus certainly isn't coming with me. I mean, he, he, I'll pick him up on Sunday. I mean, we couldn't help but think Tyna and I driving through the Bible Belt on the East Coast. I mean, so many beautiful churches with crosses. Many of them had three gigantic crosses. And the only thing that rivaled the churches was all the strip clubs. I've never seen as many gentlemen's clubs, strip clubs, brothels, and churches on every exit. Oh, you're looking at me like that for now. I said, I said, Tyna and I were talking, can you believe it? It's like, are these churches doing any good or are they just encouraging? Maybe they think, well, I can have my little sin, sin binge on Saturday, leave Jesus and I'll meet him in church on Sunday with a big crucifix on top. And with the three, this is a weird way of thinking. You know, I, I get out of fellowship, but I get back in fellowship. 
And so here Paul is shocking the Corinthians. He says, your body is a member of Christ. If you go to the prostitution uh, temple, Jesus is going there with you. It would have freaked them out. You know, that, that set most people free from sinning right there because you're thinking, I, I was thinking like, you know, it's kind of departmentalized everything. I got Jesus over here living in a spiritual life and then I got some other things I'm doing. We don't need to talk about that right now. But when you realize Jesus is there all the time, People say, I'm freaking out. I can't even sin anymore. I've had people say that to me when I was teaching them. They said, I can't even sin anymore. The same people who have said, I can't stop sinning, now say, I can't sin. I can't get away with it. I'm too freaked out by your teaching, Pastor Peter. I, I just picture Jesus there right beside me. I just can't go through with it. Somebody say, praise the Lord. Yeah. You know, this idea, <laughs> in and out theology, it reduces sin. The wages of sin is not a temporary loss of fellowship. It's death. And it minimizes what Jesus did. <laughs> he put away our sin. And he will never turn his back on you. So I want to tell you this. This takes the fun out of sinning, I hope. You say, Peter, you're ruining my sinning life. I, 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 I just see what you're saying there by Paul's uh, psychology treatment of the matter here that, that Jesus is there. You, you think about that. Next time you're up to something no good, what a Jesus is right there in you. Oh, you didn't leave him curbside. Come on. This is good psychology. This is good truth. It's not just psychology. This is the gospel. So no in and out theology. He is with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Now, I got another worm. I got another worm. Are you enjoying these worms? Here is one. Rapture scare. He's coming back for people without spot or wrinkle. You better know where you stand. Do you know that there are support groups across America called, uh, uh, what were they called now? I saw them, ex-evangelical uh, support groups. And they are aimed at people who have a rapture syndrome of fear. Full of stories of a young teenager, 13-year-old coming home and their brother and sister weren't there and they feel, oh, the rapture happened and they're freaking out, can't sleep at night. And don't look at me like that. Because before you came to this church, such were some of you. You know, people, I've heard story people going, did the rapture happen? I missed it. And, and, and they, they turn on the tap and they think blood is going to come out if the rapture happened. I don't know how that ever happened. The Bible doesn't say that you get, you get some blood coming out of your tap. But they have that. And they think, oh, it's just normal water. Oh, 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 Jesus hasn't come yet. You know, many people live their, their, their whole life. In this, where does this idea come from? He's coming back for a church without spot and wrinkle. That's not even found in the Bible. Okay, I better read it to you. I know my congregation. You don't believe a thing until I prove it from the Bible. And I applaud you for that. Are you with me? So let's get into this spot and wrinkle scripture. It says in Ephesians 5.25, Christ loved the church and gave himself for her that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word that he might present her to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she should be holy and without blemish. 
It is not even talking about the Lord's return. It's not talking about any rapture. It's talking about what Jesus did when he, as the book of Hebrews says, once for all, he made us sanctified. It's not talking about some future date where everybody's going to be perfect. Kumbaya, kumbaya. No bad thought. No, I tell you, I tell you what the church is going to be. It's going to be what it's always been, a bit messy. If you don't go to a church that's a bit messy, it needs to get messier. If you don't have some hypocrites coming, if you don't have a few gossipers coming, that means you just have dead people. We need to have new people come in that don't know much yet. Some of them are smoking this and some of them are smoking the other thing. You know what I mean by the other thing. Come on, everybody. Some are doing this. How can this happen? Because we are a living church. We have people here who are in various stages of growth in Christ and we welcome you. Some don't know Christ. We welcome you. We're not looking for a utopia. We are looking for the same kind of thing that they had in the book of Acts. That's the church. Amen. Furthermore, you, you know, the Lord's return, if I know, talk about that, rapture, Lord's return, however you look at it, is not supposed to be a cause for a freak out. It's supposed to be a celebration. I, I mean, it says in 1 John 4, 17, Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness on the day of judgment. Because as he is, so are we in the world. So when we are supposed to think about the day of judgment, we're thinking, bring it on. Oh yeah, I can't wait for the day of judgment. It's going to be awesome because I'm just like Jesus. So if it's awesome to Jesus, it's awesome to me. And he says, love has taught us this. Whatever fear we had about the Lord's return or the day of judgment, it's been wiped out by love. That's what it says. Let me read the next verse. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. So if you're living in these support groups, uh, for people who are now adults who claim they had a rapture scare. Obviously, that was a horrible thing that came to psychologically influence and damage them. They missed the whole point. The Lord's return. That's beautiful. That's wonderful. Forget about all the books you've read that you shouldn't have read. I don't want to mention them because I'm in such a kind mood right now. But really, really, we're supposed to be confident, rejoicing. Why? Because day of judgment, awesome, can't wait. Because I'm going to be just, I'm just like Jesus as he is, so am I. Oh yes, how do you know that, Peter? Because love discovered it. I began to know how much God loves, and so all fear was gone. And that fear that brought me torment, no more. Does that sound good? Isn't that the fresh apple? So let me put it this to you. I put this up on the PowerPoint. After Jesus Christ unconditionally took away our sins, do you really think he is going to bring the sins back to your attention on a day of judgment? I mean, do you really think that after Jesus went to the cross and took your sins before you were born, you think he's going to have a big LED screen? Are you going to sit there like, oh, I'm so humiliated. I'm so, I can't believe nobody knew about this. Oh, even the person I sit beside in church every Sunday, they had no idea. Oh, I want to go through the floor here. Oh, yeah. You really think that's what Jesus is going to do? That he's waiting. He can't wait for the day when he's going to nail you again, even though he took it all away. 
oh, that's a big worm. Okay, I better give you one more verse that really settles it. Hebrews 9, 28. Christ, having been offered once, are you listening to this? It's going to be good. Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin. We're not even talking about sin. The Lord's return, there's no talking about sin. No reference. You say, well, I spent my whole Christian life worrying about that. Well, maybe you could get set free right now. Okay, another worm. i got to move along here because I have more things. Heaven's point card system. You say, well, I just believe I'm going to lose my reward. They think that heaven has like a gift shop where you bring your tokens. And some have like a hundred tokens, some got ten. There you're going to come with your five tokens. And Pastor Nathan is going to be there with 500 in his bag. And, you know, we have all these ideas, and we're so carnal. When we think about our eternal reward, we're really carnal because we think in two terms. We think in terms of jewelry and real estate. Think of the song, just build my mansion next door to Jesus and tell the angels I'm coming home. You think, oh, he's going to. Oh, oh boy, what an anointing. He's going to have a big mansion and, and you're going to be there sitting in a little shack, a little, little hole we dig into the dirt there somewhere. You sit there, this little light of mine. <laughs> because, you know, this is how people think, oh, I'm going to have a lot of bling bling. Look, at when I get to heaven, I'm going to have bling bling because of all the people I won for Christ. I'm going to be all blingy. And, and you think, I'm going to be there with a little tiny, tiny plastic Looks like a pearl, but it's really plastic from Dollarama. So see, we think, come on, this is how we think. How many want to get free from that kind of thinking? Are you with me? There is no gift shop in heaven. If you, I, I don't have time to teach this. You're going to have, I'm just going to put something up in the PowerPoint. The New Testament does not speak of rewards ever, plural. It's not like, oh, you got a big one, you got a little one. No. It speaks about it only in singular. And I mentioned three cases. Christ is our reward. Christ is our prize or our pearl of great prize. Christ is our crown of life. So I'm sorry if you thought you're going to have the biggest mansion and you would be next door to Jesus and your cousins and rest of the family, they're way down there, somehow near the outhouse. I hate to ruin it for you. You see, our reward will be, oh, Jesus Christ. That's my hope. I've been hoping, I've been thinking, I've been holding on. He is my hope. And that's why it says in Matthew 20, when the, when the workers were hired, those who were hired in the 11th hour, they got paid equal with those who came in the first hour. Now, there may be different assignments. I'm not saying that, but we're not going to be all hung up on our assignment. The great joy we're going to have is not, look at me. Look at that. I got a little bigger mansion than you. How many square foot have you got? You think that's going to be that kind of pride in heaven to humiliate some people? No, we're going to be all overwhelmed with Jesus Christ. Oh, come on. He is our reward. So you say, as people often say, oh, Peter, you, you preach the gospel so nice. 
You mean, is there no consequence? People sin, people do bad things. Oh, there's a lot of consequences. And I want to spend the rest of the moments that we have talking about how God deals with people. How does God deal with you? Well, first, God works in us to be conformed to Jesus Christ. You know, I did a teaching here a few weeks ago about predestination is not what you think it is. And in this coming verse, Romans 8, 29, you have the word. However, this is referring to someone who has started their, their journey with Christ. So I didn't quote it in that sermon. I, I couldn't include everything because it would be too long. But now it fits in. Romans 8, 29, whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So God is not the originator of destruction or negativity. God works in us to produce good for conformity with how Jesus is. And the famous verse that comes in the same chapter, actually the previous verse, all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And so his purpose is in Ephesians 1 to present you holy and blameless. That was his purpose from before time. And so we're not saying that God does all things or that God wants all things to happen that happen to you. Not at all. We're not praising God for all things, certainly. There could be other actors like the devil. It could be you. It could be some other person. Uh, it could be all kinds of situations. So we're not praising God for all things, but in all things. That means even if you did something stupid, which God didn't want you to do, which is hurting you, God says, I haven't left you. I'm still working with you, and I'm helping you to see why that happened so it doesn't have to happen again. I'm helping you to learn from this, so be willing to learn. Let God work in you to both will and to show you his good pleasure. So be open to God. He wants to work everything for your good, even the worst thing that happened that he didn't want in the first place. Isn't that a loving Heavenly Father? Come on, somebody. You could say, now get ready for this. I'm going to use one of the words that people do not like. God lovingly disciplines you see that word discipline, it just, you know, the, in the old King James is the word chasten, but I, I use discipline. Hebrews 12 says, you're going to be excited about discipline by the time I'm finished. I can tell you're not excited right now, but you will. Have you forgotten the exhortation? Do not despise the discipline of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you're rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and scourges every son whom he receives. Oh, that sounds heavy, scourges. Uh, don't worry, I'll pick that up in a moment. That's, that's a little heavy word. But let's look at this. It says, don't be discouraged when the Lord rebukes you. You know, there's no one who can rebuke you as nice as the Lord. Even your wife. I said, even your wife, listen, husbands, even when your wife comes in the most loving way, trying to not hurt your male ego to give you a rebuke, the Lord is still nicer. Can I hear an amen to that? Is anybody here? I mean, it's a wonderful thing to be rebuked by the Lord. That way the rest of the world doesn't have to tell you what's wrong because the Lord is already speaking to you. 
And so discipline, the word discipline or chasten, is, is to teach and to instruct. But then we come to this word scourge. He scourges every son whom he receives. People think of the Mel Gibson movie, Passion of the Christ, you know, with that whip tearing into the flesh and ripping it out. That doesn't sound very nice, does it? So, is that what God does? Well, you know, sometimes it helps to have a pastor who studies the Bible a little bit. Can I, can, I, can I explain something to you? The book of Hebrews, initially, everybody pretty well agrees, was not written in Greek. It was written in the Hebrew language. Does that make sense? Then it was translated to the Greek. So the, the Hebrew word was bikoret, scourge bikoret, which could be translated into Greek as, as being a whiplashing, but it really also more often means Bikaret means to deeply inquire to. Everybody say, deeply inquire into. So then we say, it would say, God deeply inquires into every child that he has received. That puts a whole other twist on it, doesn't it? So that's beautiful. Isn't this awesome? What a God we have. He deeply inquires into you. You're important. Nobody would deeply inquire into you if, you don't, if that person doesn't think you are important. Our Heavenly Father loves you so much. He teaches and instructs, and He deeply, what's going on? What's going on with Charlie? What's going on with Alex? What's going on with Lisa? What's going on with Jennifer? What's going on? Isn't it wonderful? And He's doing it lovingly. You know, just before I came into the service, I thought, I wonder what Google says about this. And you know, when you Google something, you just put in a few words, and then there comes an autofill. Have you noticed that autofill? And so I put, when God disciplines us because, and then Google put in the autofill, when we sin. First article was, why does God discipline us when we sin? The Bible never says that God disciplines us specifically when we sin. Let me say that again. The Bible never says that God dis disciplines us specifically if we sin. Now, I'm sure discipline is needed if, if we do sin, but that's not what the Bible says. The whole point, what the Bible says, He disciplines us because He loves us. He disciplines everybody who loves you. Sin or no sin, you could be a little perfect, holy Hubert, just looking heavenward nonstop, and he will start disciplining you and say, get your head out of the air and, and look straight ahead and get going with your life. You see, let, let me read verse seven here. If you endure discipline, God deals with you as sons. It doesn't say God deals with you because of your sins. It's because you're his child. For what father is there, what son is there whom a father doesn't discipline? So it's because you're his. So get this out of your head, you know, you know, God's going to, you know, I don't want to do anything wrong because then God's going to get on my case. God's on your case all the time. He's on your case right now. He's on my case all the time. Look at, look at the person and say, is he on your case now? Well, you're his. He's probing what's going on. Is there more potential? Maybe you have more. You have two talents. You're supposed to get to four. When you, you know, he's, he's probing you all the time. Why? Because he loves you. Come on, let's give a hand for God. This is awesome. So, so, so this is not some, this is not like a, some kind of a punishment because you've been bad. You've been bad. That's not what we're talking about. Because you, he says, because you're mine. I love you. 
I'm always meddling in your affairs. I'm always nosing in you. God says, I'm always checking. I'm always, I'm there with you all the time. Even when you did the stupidest thing, I'm right there. What a loving God. Okay, let me read a little bit more. I got to hurry. If you are without discipline, of which all are partakers, everybody, then you are illegitimate. We have had human fathers who corrected us and we paid them respect. They disciplined us as seemed best to them, you know. You can blame your parents, but they did their best. But he for our profit. No discipline, verse 11, seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. So God is dealing with us all the time. He's moving on our hearts. Sometimes it could be in the area of giving. Hey, what's happening with your stewardship? God, get off my case. No, no, he doesn't get off your case. You belong to him. You lay down your life. He is there. How about you prospering more? How about you taking some steps? Well, I'm afraid nobody in my family has ever done it. He's just on your case all the time. You have more in you. You can fly higher. Don't be a chicken when you could be an eagle. Come on, come on. Mount your wingspan. Get up there. He's on your case. Aren't you glad to have a heavenly father who is on your case nonstop? Not to condemn you. God, but God deeply inquires into our life so that we might have a harvest of peace, purpose, wisdom, and righteousness. He never kicks you when you're down. You're not in the hands of an angry God who can't wait to fire an arrow at you and let you have it. Sorry for that sermon in 1745. It has caused psychological damage to many evangelicals. And it has encouraged, you, you know, ex-evangelical support groups. But you don't need to be in any group like that. Because I tell you, you're hearing the gospel, the good news, the glad news preached good. Hallelujah. So I say, how should we then live? How should we live in view of this? Well, we should live fearless, confident, plan for the future, charge forward, run your race. You, you know, I want to speak to the Toronto Celebration Church family. We have a race to run. We have just got started. This family, this family of God, this spiritual family, we have a great future. We have a great purpose. And much of it we have not yet seen. We are a people on the way to our World Impact Ministries family around the world and people listening who are here, part of that family. We are reaching out around the world. Pray for me. I'll be in Africa next week. We are, our Bible schools are flourishing. We are reaching people. Millions are coming to Christ. But we got much more to go. And we are running forward with it. You, you know, I, I read this. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner, everybody say forerunner, he has entered for us, even Jesus. You know, if you're running in a race, and that's what we are, you're running, and sometimes you get a little tired, but you know, when you get tired, here's a little trick. I'm not a great runner, but you know, I run a little bit. If you see somebody up ahead, you say, okay, I want to keep him in sight so I can kind of, you know, I won't quit because I see the other runner. Here it says, 
we are holding on to this hope, this new life we have. And we have somebody running ahead, Jesus. I want my friend Matt. Come on up here, Matt. I want you to come on up here. I just want to illustrate this. Look at Matt. He doesn't look very fast, but I think he is. All right. You know, now I want to ask you here, just honestly, let's show our profiles, Matt. Why don't you show your profile? You have a lot of things here. Now show my profile here so you can kind of see. If I was going to challenge, I just want you to know what we're dealing with here. If I was going to challenge Matt to one kilometer race, how many think Matt would win? How many think I would win? Let's show the profile again here, Matt, here. I mean, he's got youth on his side. He's got a little bit less, right? How many think I would win? I see two hands, but not even my wife is voting for me here. This is, you see, Matt? Well, wait, I'm not done yet. I'm not done yet. So, so I, I don't get, I, I think those were just sympathy votes. I, I, I don't take it serious, okay? I, I, I think you would all agree, most likely, Though I, I'm running faster than you think, because people have challenged me and said, we can beat you easy, and yeah, it wasn't so easy. But anyhow, uh, you would agree that Matt looks like he could run faster. Is that, is that right? But you see, I would change the proposition. I would say, Matt, what if you have to run one kilometer backwards, and you cannot turn your head? You have to look backward, face backward, and run backward. I mean, this, you know, there's curbs, there's stones, there's potholes, there's, you know, he has to run kind of feeling behind him like this. How many think that I could win at one kilometer if that was the condition? Oh, look at that tiny nice voting for me. I, come on, let me see how many think I could win. All right, thank you very much. You, you helped me make an illustration. Give Matt a good hand. And here's my point. Sadly, what many Christians are doing, they're running backwards. So the race isn't going as good as you thought. They keep looking, oh, am I in fellowship? Am I in or out right now? Oh, they're so worried. Oh, what about the rapture? What if I'm not ready? Oh, what, 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 what about this? What about this? They're running backward. What a sad way. Think, oh, I failed. Oh, I failed. Oh, I remember back then. Oh, if I only had made a different choice. Oh, you know, back then I, oh, I, oh, it's so terrible. They're running that way. And then they say, I wonder why I'm not further along in my Christian life. Well, I want to tell you, put your eyes on the forerunner. Oh, you didn't hear me. I said, put your eyes, put your attention on the forerunner. And you see some of this, somebody up ahead and he has pressed through and my eyes are on him, even Jesus Christ. And you will run your race and you will enjoy the tasty apple and, and oh, the worms are gone. But I want to just finish with one other little statement. Whenever we come together, and this is a great joy, I would say, in our church. There, there are always people who are honest enough, and it takes a certain honesty and decency for this. They say, I haven't even started the race. It's not a matter that I'm running backward or forward. I'm not even running. I'm on the sideline. I'm just living for myself, just having a little religion. 
And I'm inviting you to get in this race where you have someone who's involved with you the whole time, not angry, not vindictive, not looking to beat you up when you make a wrong step, but you have a loving heavenly father who is with you, helps you, and should you fall, I'm not encouraging you to fall, but should you trip and fall, he's there to lift you up. Should you kind of wander off a little bit, he's there until he finds you. And he strengthens you. And he corrects you. Yeah, he corrects you. Coaches you. But it doesn't tell everybody. It doesn't call the whole, you know, uh, email contact and say, look, oh, it's correct. No, he just does it to you. And he brings you into peace, prosperity, abundance, righteousness. Wouldn't you want to say, I, I want to lose my life as it is. And I want to receive this new life. I want to receive this new life. And I want to welcome you to do that.